And so this combination of COVID plus an expected economic slowdown, I think begs two questions. One, which new habits will remain? And two, which older ones will vanish? And our friends at Velasis, a data provider within our marketplace, uh, shared a really interesting stat that over 50% of respondents to a recent study expect to adopt new shopping behaviors as part of their routine in the future. To have a 50% chance to influence somebody to do something different than what has been their autopilot way of doing it up to now is pretty exciting. And so we hope that folks will think about which habits they can take advantage of, which habits may be dying a little bit, and where they want to jump off the ship before it goes down. Curious to know what industry-leading marketers are looking to achieve in the ever-evolving digital landscape? The How Agencies Thrive podcast by StackAdapt is dedicated to helping the new breed of forward-thinking, savvy, lean, and mean marketers win in the rapidly evolving digital landscape. Time to thrive. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Vitaly and I'm the host of this podcast. In this episode, we take a deeper dive into the topic of data orchestration and how changes in media consumption impacts verticals like travel, consumer goods, or retail. What really stood out to me in this discussion is really the topic of automotive industry. Specifically, how to find that new balance when people are hesitant to purchase big ticket items, yet social dynamics push people to own private vehicles because they're hesitant to use public transit. Christian and John discuss different data strategies to reach in-market consumers, and importantly, the idea of suppression, and how to not target people who just drove the car off the lot. Without further ado, here's the episode with John Shaughnessy from LiveRamp. All right, welcome to the podcast, everyone. Um, today, I'll be talking to John Shaughnessy from, from LiveRamp, where we'll be talking about uh, data orchestration, uh, the current advertising climate. Uh, in specific verticals where data orchestration uh, works really well. So thanks so much for for hopping on and joining me today, John. Christian, very excited to be here. <laughs> awesome. So uh, before introductions, uh, I just wanted to talk quickly about the definition of data orchestration, because I know it's not necessarily uh, an intuitive phrase, but it's a combination of data, identity, and machine learning. Uh, it's a cohesive strategy that really allows uh, DMPs like LiveRamp and DSPs like StackAdapt uh, to be successful together by creating like very personalized audiences that are created within the DMP and then passed over to, to the DSP to execute on, on all types of digital media. So I'll quickly introduce myself. Um, so I'm on the solutions team uh, at StackAdapt. I partner with the sales team and the technical team uh, teams to empower marketers. Uh, basically helping them build unique advertising solutions um, and drive um, the growth of the business. So that, that's kind of a fancy way of saying it, but it's, uh, I really consider the solutions role to be kind of a translating role between the revenue side of the business and the t- technical and product uh, side of the business. And so John is the, the head of data strategy, uh, programmatic at LiveRamp, where he manages the commercial strategy to grow programmatic data buying from the LiveRamp data store marketplace. Um, and he helps LiveRamp's partners adopt and scale third-party data strategies. And before LiveRamp, John was a management consultant and uh, founded an advertising agency. 
So with that being said, uh, John, if you could maybe talk a little bit more about um, how you got into advertising um, and and how you ended up at LiveRamp. Happy to. Yes. So the transition into advertising was a fortuitous one. When I was a management consultant at Booz Allen Hamilton, uh, we helped some media companies, uh, including Viacom, on strategy and tactics to help win in their prospective space and uh, just really became enamored with the industry. And so uh, when a uh, college friend tapped me a couple years later to be a co-founder for a boutique ad agency, I hopped at the chance as a way to get to learn more and really bring some of the data background I had from my consulting days to this industry. And it was a lot of fun. In terms of LiveRamp, before moving to the Bay Area recently, I was working at a VC in New York City. And this seed stage fund focused on marketplaces. And the uh, LiveRamp data store marketplace was a really fascinating business model for me that has been growing quickly and helping to balance supply and demand. Um, So data providers, and then on the demand side, brands, agencies, and platforms. And I thought that would be a fun way to uh, kind of continue my career on the backs of some of the really interesting things that LiveRamp is doing around identity, um, addressability, uh, etc. Cool. Thanks. That's super interesting. So I'm curious, uh, how did you find being a co-founder of a boutique agency? How did that go? There were good days and bad days, uh, but we had a lot of fun grinding it out. You know, the thing that I think I take away from it most uh, is the responsibility and the ability to wear many hats. That means focusing on, you know, strategy for the agency, elements of marketing, where can you find your niche, uh, business development in terms of signing new partners and helping them grow and be successful. And then a data and analytics function, which is how can we find insights to make those who work with us better than they were yesterday. And there's a lot of management and uh, leadership elements as well. uh, As you're looking to hire first employees, figure out who will run certain parts of the business and hope that uh, you're doing more good than holding people back as you know, a first time executive. Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah. And I, I come from a similar background in terms of analytics um, and data analysis. Originally uh, was into data science and, and transitioning into advertising just seems to make sense, especially uh, in terms of digital, just because of the the plethora of data that's out there and is available. Um, super interesting to dig into. Awesome to hear. Um, so with that being said, so a lot of people might see who who may not be too familiar with LiveRamp might see it um, as a, as a DMP where you can um, you know onboard first party data and have that pushed to different platforms and have a vast um, third party uh, data store to to or marketplace to pick from. But obviously, there's a lot more to it than that. So, uh, could you explain kind of like what LiveRamp does today? You bet. So. Think of LiveRamp as providing the data connectivity platform leveraged by brands and their partners to deliver innovative products and exceptional experiences. And I would say in times like these, we could all use some more exceptional experiences. And so LiveRamp is powered by four core capabilities, data accessibility, identity, connectivity, and data stewardship. And so LiveRamp 
exists to make it easy to connect the world's data, people, and applications. Awesome. Thanks. Um, very nice structured response. So where, where exactly would you, uh, would you fit into that equation and, and what area are you focused on at LiveRamp today? Perfect. So I work in our data store, which is a marketplace that combines data sellers, so about 150 data providers uh, spanning all kinds of data types, uh, verticals, and media, and data buyers, who could be brands, agencies, platforms, publishers, and in some cases, data providers as well. And so we are uh, not quite uh, DMP. We think of ourselves more as a marketplace because we're not cookie-based. DMPs actually are our clients. And what we're doing is focusing on taking the uh, identity work that is core to LiveRamp's product suite and matching it with ethically sourced data so that people can get the most out of their first party, third party, or a combination of those two. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people uh, may not know that. So that's that's super, super insightful. Um, you know, the definition of a DMP gets thrown around and it, it's good to uh, understand where LiveRamp fits in that equation. That's right. And then we work with partners uh, like StackAdapt, who are uh, DSPs who can help those data buyers activate across a variety of platforms and reach the target audiences in the places that uh, they're most influential. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's kind of like what the definition of data orchestration is, is coming from, you know, maybe first collecting the offline data or working with the original data provider, um, and then working with LiveRamp um, to kind of address all of that, onboard it, um, model it, whatever, whatever it may be, and use kind of like the, the identity portion to make sure that audience is addressable as possible, and then have that executed through uh, a DSP to um, through media. That's right. Yeah, it's a it's a big effort, but fortunately we've got good partners like like StackAdapt to help make it easier for folks to find what they need, um, the audiences they need, and then be able to reach them. Yeah, absolutely. So that being said, um, what what are the main focuses for for 2020 for, for LiveRamp in particular? Yeah, so. I'll come back to some of the broad live ramp things because I'm sure we'll want to talk a little bit about uh, Google's cookie deprecation and what it means for the advertising industry going forward. But in our world of the data marketplace, we're really focusing on three things. The first is reprioritizing business outcomes, which I hope to come back to in just a sec. The second is balancing supply and demand across the marketplace and within various verticals, some of which are high flyers right now, some of which are struggling a little bit. And then third is to help our uh, partners with backend investment they can be doing, not only to help them in these tough times, but to prepare themselves to be better coming out the other side. Cool. Yeah. I mean, that... It's interesting that that you bring up, you know, working with both sides, uh, because until recently, with um, with Google Chrome's announcement, which I think we'll get into um, a little bit later in, in more depth, um, but working with DSPs and both SSPs um, is, is is fairly interesting, I think. And so, could you just describe a little bit how how you kind of fit uh, in terms of working with DSPs, um, which we we've already talked about a little bit, but also working with um, the Exchange SSP side of the business? Yeah. For sure. Um, so we want to be kind of that catalyst that makes those connections, right? So one thing we can uh, talk about uh, here in a little bit is 
a big initiative for LiveRamp this year, which is called Authenticated Traffic Solutions, where we're trying to help publishers be able to get uh, a replacement for cookies in the bidstream. And so that is one unique focus that we have where we're trying to create this situation where there is a better value exchange. And by that, I mean, if we can help uh, publishers have better content, and then we can incent consumers of that content to show trust by authenticating, then we can come up with a much better way to allow for the ecosystem to work seamlessly, even as cookies take a step back. And that's something that's uh, really important to us um, and something that we are throwing a lot of investment and uh, colleagues at. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a super interesting side of the business that um, is kind of on everyone's minds um, in 2020. Uh, and we'll, yeah, we'll get, we'll get into that in a little bit, but I think that's a great transition um, to the, the, sec- the second section um, of what we're going to talk about. So this section is really um, meant to focus on what is happening in the industry today, um, in the advertising industry. And the first thing, of course, that's always on on everyone's mind, um, including uh, likely both of ours, is um, you know with the human tragedy of COVID nineteen ongoing um, and its effect on the economy. There's impacts that are far reaching, um, you know, both personal uh, and and business wise. And so I just wanted to touch on the topic on how uh, LiveRamp sees media consumption trends changing and and how how LiveRamp sees the effect, I guess, on the entire advertising industry in general from the perspective um, of, 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 I guess, the, the data side, but, I, uh, you know, working with both SSPs and DSPs, really seeing the entire ad tech industry. Yeah, absolutely. I think you bring up a great point. Um, first and foremost, we hope that all the listeners of today's podcast are safe, healthy, and sane. It's easy to, I think, get caught up in the disruption to an industry or to the broader economy. Um, But we do need to realize and and hearken back to in these times that this is impacting people, right? And so I think a lot of what we will try to share today is trends and insights that reflect what we are seeing, but also what the impact is for individuals and uh, verticals and the economy at large. Um, because I think one of the big takeaways is we need to still be able to reach people, the right people in the right places with the right messaging. Um, and getting those things right, uh, may require a little bit of a change in our approach given the sensitivity of this time and so many things being brand new. So uh, maybe to start with some of the media trends, we got some great insights from um, our industry friends at IAB. They pulled about 400 media planners, media buyers, and brand leads. About 75% of those respondents were VP or above. And three quarters said that uh, that coronavirus will have a greater impact on U.S. ad spend than the financial crisis when ad spend dropped 13%. And as a result, we've already seen that 24% of marketers have paused all ad spend for the rest of Q1 and Q2. And then another 46% are adjusting their advertising spend through June. And so far, we've seen digital ad spend down about a third. 
and traditional ad spend down about 40%. Now, those, Christian, that are still advertising are adjusting their in-market tactics and are actually increasing and in many cases doubling down on audience targeting, OTT and CTV device targeting, and programmatic buying. So our friends at Comscore shared some insight that they've seen 29% year-over-year growth in OTT households for CTV and 43% for streaming boxes, most of which benefits the big four, uh, Netflix, YouTube, Amazon Prime, and Hulu. And then additionally, we have seen that social use is just absolutely exploding. Alliant, one of our data partners, um, reports that daily social media activity is up 70%. And to put some context around that, uh, there was a Smartly IO um, study in November of 2019, where 52% of retail marketers said that they plan to spend more on social advertising in 2020 than in 2019. And 50% of them were planning to spend at least half of their annual marketing budget on social media advertising this year. So a 70% increase in usage probably means that there is still some supply that is available to be purchased and to reach people who are spending more time at home on their devices and looking for distractions in this time. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting um, yeah, to hear your perspective on that. And we actually uh, ran a webinar last week um, addressing similar similar topics, um, kind of giving insights and trends, um, really as much data as possible um, to to advertisers and marketers to help understand um, how that affects their business. And one thing we we definitely noticed is, you know, as people are staying home, like you mentioned, um, there's just an increase in supply naturally with with 70, like you said, 70% of people being uh, on social media and people watching more CTV and OTT content as they're, um, you know, uh, sheltering in place. So it's, it's interesting that you know the, there's there's been articles and and research done on um, you know the creation of a buyer's market as some marketers reduce reduce their spending or you know switch media types and the supply is ever increasing. So that being said, um, you know the the numbers are there. Uh, supply is 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 up. Um, demand is a little bit down. Of course, that changes for every channel. But so. What are your thoughts on advertising um, during a pandemic, um, you know, in a buyer's market like like there is? W- would that involve, you know, expanding strategy and tactics or, you know, would there be kind of like the most important um, being pressed on the on the messaging part on having very empathetic um, messaging and, and really understanding um, the human aspect? I think you're right on all of them. If I had to pick one, shout it from a mountaintop uh, piece of advice, it would simply be don't stop advertising. Dating back a century, Christian studies find that those who keep spending come out ahead. In the 1920s, Harvard Business Review revealed that those who continued to advertise uh, during the recession of 1921 to 23 saw a sales growth of 20%, while those who reduced their spend felt a 7% decline. In the 80s, McGraw-Hill research found that B2B companies who maintained or increased their budgets grew 275% more during the recession and for up to the next three years. So in every recession, one of the first things companies do is pull back on advertising. But as I'm sure that you've seen in some of the stats you've researched and shared with your friends in the industry, 
pulling back prevents advertisers from taking advantage of at least four benefits. Number one, the noise level drops when competitors cut back spend. Two, the cost of advertising drops, yielding better deals. Three, advertisers are projecting stability in a difficult time. And probably most importantly, four, share of voice leads to share of market, which leads to increased profits. Determining audience identity has become increasingly vital among advertisers as they face the complexity of challenges when trying to engage with audiences in a meaningful way. Here at the How Agencies Thrive podcast, we are obsessed with helping marketers level up their digital strategies by focusing on making better decisions for activating audiences to ensure their digital marketing strategies succeed each and every time. That's why we have created a guide specifically for reaching consumers across multiple touch points in the most engaging manner. Visit go.stackitup.com slash audience guide to get a copy of Making Better Decisions for Activating Audiences. That's go.stackitup.com slash audience guide. Yeah, that uh, those are those are great points, and they all, you know, there's. It, I think it really depends on the on the industry as well in terms of, um, you know, if it's what type of advertising to do. But it sounds like most of the statistics lend to saying that it's it's not a good idea to stop outright. But for example, like if you put yourself in the shoes of a a travel and tourism advertiser, where they're not able to necessarily run campaigns where uh, conversions, you know, uh, at least the, in the natural sense of the word, word conversions being, um, you know, people signing up or people, uh, booking hotels online or, or visiting different tourism sites or booking, uh, cruises and things like that. You know, people, it, it doesn't make sense right now for, for any of that to happen as, as, you know, traveling is, is being put on pause. And so with that respect, um, I feel like there's kind of two approaches, um, the first one being the return on ad spend approach, which may not make sense for, for example, for a travel and tourism advertiser. But then the second one is the is the brand health approach um, and having mm-hmm. a very empathetic message that that still keeps that brand in the minds of consumers and helps potentially uh, gain trust and confidence with them. Um, so, so what are your thoughts on the different types of advertising? Um, obviously, industry dependent right now. Sure. So, I wanted to follow up on your point about maintaining that share of voice, but reconsidering a different style of messaging for these times, because I think it's spot on. Um, the IAB also gave some insights here, saying that 63% of marketers have already changed their in-market messages. 42% are increasing mission-based marketing. And so a couple good examples that you may have seen or could easily Google. It, the first is Walmart's Retail Heroes. The CEO crafted a video thanking 1 million frontline employees for dedication to its customers. And then no doubt many of us have seen Miller Lite's virtual tap jar, uh, virtual tip jar, I should say, a campaign that donated $1 million to a bartender relief fund. And the ads encouraged patrons, uh, viewers, to do the same. And then the IAB also found that 41% are increasing caused related marketing. So an example here is Dove's Courage is Beautiful. Uh, It highlights mask-wearing healthcare workers, and then they donated 200,000 masks to New Jersey hospitals. Uh, McDonald's in Brazil redrew the two sides of their iconic brand M to signal social distancing. So there are some brands 
and I would argue this is across all categories to your point, where you can continue to make a connection with your current customers. Maybe acquisition is not the best use of marketing dollars, but there have been some really strong opinions from consumers that appreciate brands that are going out of their way to deliver relevant and timely uh, information. In fact, 87% said that is top of mind for them. So even if the approach is not to go gung-ho to try to anywhere from stop the bleeding to gain market share, there is this human connection we've talked about before, especially with current customers, to be able to let them know that a brand is trustworthy, a brand is looking out for them, and will be there for them once we inevitably move out of this time. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that speaks to really the type the type of brand um, that, that's running the advertising is that it really may not make sense to run um, certain acquisition-based campaigns. But then on the flip side, uh, if you think about CPG, for example, and potentially smaller CPG brands that may have been on the backs of the shelves or um, a little harder to reach for consumers. Um, those are potentially, you know, open now as, as people are, are shopping online and are, are less concerned potentially about the brand, but just about, um, you know, receiving the product that may, that may help the consumer. So I think it's really um, the decision of the consumer at the end of the day, which will then uh, help inform the brand on, on how they can move forward. Well said. And I think actually to build on that a little bit, um, one thing that I think is important regardless of whether you go down one of those two paths or perhaps a third, is awareness by advertisers that they can harness changing consumption habits. We're at this inflection point, which very rarely off, very rarely happens, to be able to change behaviors in a significant way as if to totally reshape them. So let me tell you what I mean. A uh, 2009 study in the European Journal of Social Psychology proved that forming a new habit takes about 66 days. That study debunked a 1960s one that claimed it's closer to 21 days. And I think as we are talking here today on April 15th, our quarantine could certainly last 66 days. And so this combination of COVID plus an expected economic slowdown, I think, begs two questions. One, which new habits will remain? And two, which older ones will vanish. And yeah. our friends at uh, Velasis, a data provider within our marketplace, uh, shared a really interesting stat that uh, over 50% of respondents to a recent study expect to adopt new shopping behaviors as part of their routine in the future. To have a 50% uh, chance to influence somebody to do something different than what has been their autopilot way of doing it up to now is pretty exciting. And so we hope that folks will think about which habits they can take advantage of, which habits may be dying a little bit, and where they want to jump off the ship before it goes down. Yeah, very well put. I mean, I, I appreciate all the statistics that you're throwing out there. It's very, very informative. Yeah, so that that being said, I mean, yeah, there's there's changes that we're uh, that you mentioned um, that are really potentially long run habit changes for, yeah. for consumers um, for everyone. And uh, w one that comes to mind, uh, kind of going off off topic a little bit here, but one that comes to mind is um, with with linear TV and, and live sports consumption. 
you know, with the, with the live sports hiatus uh, for any sports fans out there, it's obviously uh, not an easy time not being able to to watch your favorite teams play. And um, and it's really a, a hole in the TV landscape in terms of content, but also in terms of um, of ad spend as there's, you know, billions of dollars that would have been spent on March Madness. Uh, well, the combination of March Madness, the NHL, NBA playoffs, um, international soccer, etc., and the question is, will that be will that be a big influence in terms of cord cutting and people who may unsubscribe in the meantime while they're not able to watch um, their live sports and become comfortable uh, with an OTT CTV con- uh, subscription? And will that put pressure on the bigger networks to potentially focus more of their time and effort on on providing that content, that live sports content on on smart TVs um, and and via subscription? So, uh, you know, that could be one of the lasting effects as well. I agree. I was brought to tears as you were <laughs> describing all those sports leagues uh, that have uh, been postponed or, or perhaps um, canceled for the rest of the season. And uh, one of the biggest trends that we have seen, data buyers in our marketplace reaching out to uh, our audience solutions team, which is our resident experts on uh, data providers and data segments, is exactly for what you're describing. How can I reach sports fans now that I don't have these stalwarts to go to? And so it has kind of um, reinforced the importance of audience targeting and being able to find these folks where they are um, and where they are now might not just be, you know, home versus at a bar, but it's also on what mediums they're now devouring, you know, uh, content. And obviously, all the trends that I've seen, and it sounds like you have too, just point to OTT and CTV consum- consumption going through the roof. And, you know, in the meantime, uh, IAB was noting that 73% of these media planners, media buyers, and brand leads believe coronavirus will impact TV upfronts um, and spend by up to an average of 20%. And, you know, as it is right now, these upfront presentations aren't taking place and a lot of content production is being halted, right? Which is even, I think, impacting some of the, you know, HBOs, Netflix, et cetera, uh, that are trying to pump out as much new content during this time as they can. Yeah, absolutely. And then you see, for example, um, other types of platforms that that are producing more short form content that doesn't require that production level of production increasing in popularity as well. Yeah. You've probably seen uh, adverts for this um, platform called Quibi, Q-U-I-B-I, which is short yep. for Quick Bytes. They raise yeah. by startup standards an incredible amount of money uh, and are enlisting celebrities largely to do, I think, content that's always less than 10 minutes. Uh, and while there's been some mixed reviews, I think, from viewers, it hasn't stopped the amount of uh, money and uh, resources being pushed into it. So I think that's one example right now of where people are trying to strike while the iron is hot. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to mention. Uh, I just, To be honest, I didn't know how to pronounce the name. So thanks for jumping <laughs> in there. No worries. Um, and you know, it's interesting too. I think um, you were mentioning a little bit about CPG. To me... Uh, and I think most of our audience could probably um, associate with this, there have been a lot of interesting findings that point to some of these 
habit consumption tipping points. So I don't know if you fall into some of these buckets, but I know we have at at my house. Um, IRI noted that buyers are reversing long-term trends towards organic and natural products, favoring stronger cleaning products. So they're basically saying, I'm concerned about uh, coronavirus, the fact that it can live on hard surfaces. Mm-hmm. I can appreciate uh, things that are good for the earth, but right now I care to protect my health, right? And so that seems to be bringing us back to a time where um, maybe more abrasive, maybe more chemically infused products are having a little bit of a renaissance, right? Um, yeah. I mean, and on the flips, this isn't or doesn't really have anything to do with advertising, but on, on the flip side, you see uh, the changes in the environment that are occurring um, due to people being at home uh, as well, which is you know super interesting. Uh, I remember going really off topic here, but I remember seeing a, a video uh, from Cancun um, in the in the resort town where there were uh, there was a video of a jaguar and of alligators like roaming in the pools of the of the resorts. So just really. <laughs> really peculiar times in general. It is. It's a little bit of an indictment that when we stay home, you know, you can see uh, the Himalayas in India for the first time uh, that, you know, ozone deterioration is at it's like 20 or 50 year low. Um, But yeah, I mean, there, there are some, I guess, as hard as it is to say this, some beneficiaries uh, in this time. Another thing that I've seen that I thought was pretty comical, but absolutely describes me to a T, IRI also reported that consumers are returning big time to comfort brands. So for instance, Kraft Mac and Cheese saw a 67% increase in new buyers versus traditional times. And I know that, uh, you know, in my first uh, hoarding run to Trader Joe's, I bought three or four boxes of mac and cheese after not having had it for years. And that is one thing that I continue to replenish, uh, even as um, it's clear that I'll be able to get my hands on mac and cheese for the foreseeable yeah. future. So I don't know if you've had any uh, or or seen any examples of that, um, where we're kind of going back to maybe some like nostalgic tendencies. Yeah, for sure. I think that like when you get in the group, or at least I think it's slowed down now as, as you see from different like foot traffic reports that are provided by, um, you know, companies like Factual, recently acquired by Foursquare um, and Cubic and these other foot traffic companies, you see that huge spike, um, I guess a month or a month or so ago now where people were getting out in, in large numbers, you know, cause it was so uncertain, but I think that's really fallen off lately. But in that, in that original surge, I think, you know, I, I experienced it as well. And I think people are put, we're, we're just throwing things in their carts that that were more comforting, comforting, and they wouldn't have you know really thought of purchasing like a month before. That's right. And the last thing that I'll mention, which actually speaks to uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, McKinsey did a study uh, where it asked folks uh, about their expected consumption over the next two to four weeks, and alcohol spend was projected to be about 25% lower. So this kind of suggests that there's a disconnect sometimes between buyer's intention and their action, right? And that's something that as marketers, we're always trying to bridge that gap between what folks might say they want to do and then the voting with their wallets. Uh, Anecdotally, it feels like I've been invited to more happy hours over the past uh, three weeks than over the prior three years. So I doubt that that consumption is going down, but it does point to the fact that some uh, changes 
might actually uh, not be happening or happening in the way that we anticipate. Yeah. I mean, and again, like we were talking about before, it's, uh, it's really different depending on, on every industry that you're looking at, whether it's alcohol, you know, food and drink or um, alcoholic beverages, or whether it's uh, travel and tourism or B2B, there's, there's all these different changes that, that are affected by this. Um, and so uh, transitioning to, to that topic, uh, are there specific verticals that are standing out um, from Livrant's perspective today, um, either positive or negative? What, what are the main trends that you've, you've observed um, in those industries? Yeah, so I think CPG is experiencing a tailwind. Travel, as you've mentioned a couple times, uh, is struggling. Adara, one of our data providers, um, reported that travel searches for the week of March 23rd were down 80% year over year, and bookings were down 87% year over year. The, the good news, I would say, in all of this is that after both 9-11 and the financial crisis, international travel to the US increased dramatically by about 10% year over year in each case. So there's something to be looking forward to. And again, probably a reason not to um, totally shut down advertising budgets and simply sit on the sidelines. But across uh, travel, the impact has been huge. Tourism economics, uh, predicts a $400 billion um, hit to U.S. travel spending. The World Travel and Tourism Council has warned that COVID could cut 50 million jobs. And that's doubly impactful because the tourism industry accounts for about 10% of global GDP. And Mm -hmm. experts in that field are saying once the pandemic is under control, it could still take up to 10 months for the sector to return to to normal levels. So um, I think that there will probably be some deals to incentivize people to travel. But as long as restrictions exist, it's not even really on the menu of options. Yeah. What I yeah, would and, and say... The, go oh, ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No. I was just going to say, what I think is an interesting third vertical is um, consumer finance, because this one really goes back to what we were talking about earlier, your really salient point about, we have to remember that we're all humans being impacted before it's a vertical before it's it's an industry before it's an economy, right? And so um, it's kind of no news at this point that there have been historically high jobless claims in the United States and in many other countries. Um, TransUnion did a report where they said 61% of Americans are being financially impacted by coronavirus, and that's up about eight points from just a month ago. So the um, impact is is coming quickly, and affected consumers report a budget shortfall of about a thousand dollars, and are saying within six weeks they're not sure that they're going to be able to pay their bills or their loans. Um, what is good news, and what I hope has been a result of the consumer finance industry's efforts to reach out to its clients is that 14% of impacted respondents don't have a game plan to pay bills, but that was 42% earlier in March. So what we've seen Mm -hmm. is a trend of folks reaching out to lenders and those lenders often giving payment options about two thirds of the time uh, to defer or otherwise uh, make them more amenable. And I think this is a really good example of how we need to focus on, yes, we want to sell more things, but we do need to be very cognizant of folks livelihoods and 
not just the financial stress, but the mental stress? And how can there be me be more reassurance by brands that things will be all right and that brands can help be part of that return to normalcy in short order? Yeah. Yeah. Very well put. And I think that um, obviously the healthcare industry plays a big role in that. But um, to your point, the consumer facing financial services industry um, really has an important job to do in, in helping um, consumers as much as possible and taking kind of a backseat to, you know, potentially selling credit cards or, or other different things that they may be used to when, when the economy is up. Um, but more being in a support role and having their, um, their mantra and their advertising and their messaging um, kind of circling or orbiting around that, that empathetic point. Absolutely. That's going to be key. I think in times of crisis, um, financial services organizations, um, and I was working at JP Morgan uh, during the financial crisis, take a lot of um, reputational hits. And some of that is obviously very well-deserved. So uh, hopefully they are being even more sensitive to the need to be empathetic in this time um, because it's the right thing to do. Yeah, completely agree. Um, okay, well, so we, we've spent a lot of time on that topic, which um, makes sense as it's on everyone's mind, including both of ours. Um, but speaking of other trending topics, in particular, I guess starting back in January, about the announcement from Chrome um, in that they were going to discontinue uh, the support of third-party cookies. Um, so I'll, I'll just describe the announcement to give all the listeners context quickly. Um, so. Back in January, Google announced it will join Safari and Firefox in blocking third-party cookies um, in its Chrome web browser. And their head of engineering said it'll happen approximately in two years, so roughly the beginning of 2022. So, John, over to you. Uh, how do you think uh, LiveRamp is approaching Chrome's announcement of discontinuing third-party cookies? Sure. So this announcement was pretty much in line with our expectations, Christian. Um, LiveRamp's been planning for a world without third-party cookies for the last several years. The other thing that I'd want to emphasize is we're prepared for these changes. So LiveRamp has launched its Open and Neutral Authenticated Traffic Solutions, or ATS for short, as you might read in the press or maybe hear your industry friends discuss. Um, it launched last year, and it can be leveraged by brands, agencies, and publishers today to buy inventory without the need for a third-party cookie. And so far, those addressability solutions have been kind of lovingly embraced by the industry, um, who's been telling us, at least for a couple years now, that they welcome a simple standard and an unbiased solution. I believe we've now signed on 39 publishers globally that reach uh, 16 billion daily impressions across 8,000 websites. And then on the other side, identity link and enabling buying and measuring on. IDL, as we uh, short phrase our identity link, has also been implemented or is being adopted by 34 DSPs and 15 SSPs. Um, so we talked a little bit earlier about how we work with both sides, and we're trying to make sure that um, the concept of bidding on IDL is um, something that both sides of the ecosystem are fully embracing. Yeah, great, great explanation. And I think it really is an issue that will impact everyone in the ad tech industry. Um, so maybe to help uh, everyone understand a little bit better, um, in the eyes of, including myself, uh, in the eyes of a publisher, 
how would uh, Identity Link and um, you know this uh, a solution like Identity Link uh, help a publisher's day to day efforts with with the disappearance, assuming that the disappearance of the third party cookie happens as as Google says it will. Yeah, you bet. So I think that LiveRamp remains a leader in consumer privacy and really strongly believes that everyone should have control and choice over their data. But that doesn't have to be at odds with helping publishers succeed. In fact, we kind of feel that this new improved infrastructure um, can help to create better trust between publisher and consumer and consequently consumer and marketer. So the way that we look at it, um, and there was a great article penned by Travis Klinger, our SVP of addressability on Digiday. Um, And I think he summed it up best by kind of saying, the whole point is to enable publishers to create experiences that provide value, offer consumers a method to express trust through authentication, and avoid having to rely on unsustainable solutions like fingerprinting, insecure universal IDs, or hashed emails, which I think a lot of folks have pushed back on in the industry for a variety of concerns. Yeah, that's that's great. And I think it's um, there's definitely a balance that needs to be struck uh, in terms of uh, finding the middle ground between personalization um, and privacy. And I think, you know, as as people continue to work and collaborate on these on these issues that that will be found. Um, and I think Identity Link is obviously uh, an awesome solution, which we're leveraging uh, at Stack Adapt as well. Um, Thank you for the for the vote of approval there, Christian. We always <laughs> appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're really excited um, about the launch of of the product that we're going to be leveraging uh, Identity Link for. Um, but you can talk about that uh, another time. Um, sure. So what other uh, alternative solutions do you think could work? Um, you know, whether it comes from Chrome or um, other other players in the industry. Um, and what is your point of view on that at, at LiveRamp? So not to uh, poo-poo other alternatives. I think we are just focused on doubling down, being really committed to enabling a open, healthy, and competitive ecosystem. It's at least our point of view that um, industry shifts like this kind of underscore the importance of our approach. And um, as we see that Google's announcement to phase out third-party cookies is an opportunity to further accelerate this ATS that we've talked about. Um, Mm -hmm. And we're trying to do everything that we can to position that as kind of the gold standard going forward that all parties can benefit from and find value that they desire. Great. Yeah. I mean, that we talked about the the publisher side and the um, on how SSPs would work with uh, work with Identity Link um, and Identity Solutions in general. Um, And I think the, the key side that uh, that we didn't talk about um, is is the buyer side, which is, you know, we experience very much uh, at uh, at StackAdapt being a DSP, and I think that as identity solutions pop up, um, it really will just enhance the ability for people to to target and bid as as more, essentially a uh, a more private, balanced identity form of identity like Identity Link um, will allow advertisers to target. Um, at that level, except with with an advanced state um, of privacy um, and opt-in, etc. And I think that uh, if anything, um, the, you know, the cookie being the the very old technology that it is, 
I think it's it's really a step forward for um, could be a step forward for the industry. Uh, again, it's all it's all speculation at uh, at this point as as we don't know exactly how things will unfold um, by 2022. But uh, if you look at if you look at recent technologies like mobile phones and and smart TVs, connected TVs, um, set top boxes, etc., n- none of those involve cookies whatsoever, um, and the targeting is very is very one to one and effective. And so I think. Uh, having these alternative solutions for the internet and the open web uh, was only natural to come. Well said. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I think we've I think we've discussed the uh, the cookie the the disappearance of the third party cookie um, as as people as people put it um, to a good point. But uh, we're always happy to both at Stack Adapt and Live Ramp talk to anyone about about the uncertainty of the cookie. Um, and with that, we can move on to to the last section here. Um, we kind of we touched on a few of these topics. Um, so we, we were going to talk about uh, automotive, CPG, and retail, and how things are changing um, right now um, for those three industries. We already touched a little bit on CPG, but we also wanted to talk about in general how LiveRamp can help support those uh, those different verticals um, and what. Or tried and true solutions from a data perspective that work in those industries. So for the first one um, that we didn't really talk much about is is automotive. So again, jumping back to the topic of of right here, right now, um, how do you see the automotive industry uh, being affected by by the economic downturn and and coronavirus? It definitely has been impacted. I think one of the things that uh, TransUnion's um, reports shared was that folks are deprioritizing big ticket purchases. Uh, vacations are the first things that get pushed back, but then it's auto purchases and home purchases, right? And so you've got that kind of financial squeeze in addition around most parts of the country. It's not very easy to go to a dealership right now and uh, walk the lot and wheel and deal. And so there definitely has been an impact don't have a lot of stats on hand, but I know that has been an industry that is that has seen a hit. I think in terms of strategies, Christian, that uh, we've seen be useful for auto historically, I think the first is just uh, leveraging kind of auto providers who enable targeting based on purchase and ownership data. There are three or four very strong ones that we work with. Each utilize different data points. So maybe just a quick blurb on each. There's V12, who has VIN level ownership database. That's a leading source for kind of identifying customers who own a certain type of vehicle. And they use service reports. So that also can include secondary owners, those who have bought, used. Polk is a very strong uh, brand. They have one of two sources of DMV sales match data. Segments are predictive, um, but based on a deterministic transaction data asset. Experian has the other source of DMV sales match data. And then a new uh, comer to the live ramp data store is Urban Science. So they control one of the leading new car purchase data assets. And in a little bit of a twist versus V12, Polk, and Experian, they believe the best use case for their data is actually suppression. They can turn off advertising for buyers who convert even faster than the OEMs can. 
So that's a great way to make sure that continued ad spend does not target somebody who just drove a car off the lot yesterday. Interesting. Yeah, that sounds like some very innovative um, companies in the in the automotive industry in particular that I'm not necessarily as as familiar with. So thanks for elaborating on those. And I, I just remembered actually, I think we had a discussion uh, the other day where we were talking about the uh, the auto industry and the fact that uh, public transportation um, is a little bit probably taking a, a downturn. At least we've experienced that up here in Toronto as people are staying home and, and limiting person-to-person contact. And so that uh, this is completely speculation because I don't have any stats to back it up, but I, I would feel that uh, the automotive industry has seen potentially seen an uptick as people are you know, staying in their own cars and looking for other methods to get around that are a little more isolated. I think there we've hit this point for a couple of different industries, but we know that there is a lot of advertising spend to buyers of a certain brand, reassuring them that they have a safe car, they have a fast car, they have a uh, durable car. And I'm sure that some of the money that might typically go towards acquisition is being recalibrated to building those brand relationships because those are so important in the run-up to the two or three or four times in your lifetime where you make that big purchase. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the big purchase uh, is something that you mentioned that, you know, is likely taking taking a pause right now, but it's still very important to be, to have that brand health and, and to partner with consumers um, in, in a feel good way, um, especially uh, in a time like we're experiencing right now. So with that being said, the last industry, uh, I was going to talk about CPG and ask you a few questions about that, but I think we covered a lot of it uh, naturally uh, in our conversation about 20 minutes ago. Um, so the last, the last thing I wanted to talk about was, was the retail industry. Yeah. Um, so with businesses that involve uh, face-to-face interaction um, closing down, uh, how has LiveRamp worked with retail-focused customers um, during this time? Yeah, so I think there's a couple things that we're focusing on. I th- the first, I would say, is helping to drive customers to e-com. So combining identity resolution with third-party audiences to find retailers' customers and drive them to buy online. The second is supplementing location data that buyers might have historically purchased with purchase data. Retail loves location data, right? Who visits your stores and your competitors' stores, but transaction data can help fill those current gaps. That said, some of our close location data providers like Factual and Cubic and PlaceIQ are producing some really interesting insights and trends right now about where people aren't going. And so putting that together with other pieces of the puzzle, you can figure out where maybe foot traffic has come to a standstill, e.g. malls, uh, and where you might be able to recover some of that lost revenue online. And then I wanted to mention a new provider in the data store, Precise Target. So uh, they have 5 billion SKU level customer transactions provided by retailers to create 400 million consumer taste profiles for over 11,000 brands. And so there are folks who are coming in looking to create kind of retail co-ops of sorts, um, modeling audiences, but based on deterministic seeds to help retail brands survive and hopefully flourish on the other side. Yeah, and I think one I think one point you brought up there really rings true. Um, 
with me as well is that it's what pe- where people aren't going or what people are not consuming now that uh, you know consumer habits have changed and media consumption has changed. You know, people aren't going to live sports games, uh, which means you know if you were to advertise at those live sports games or um, you know whether it be digital out of home, uh, whether it be billboards, um, or whether it be simply advertising you know on TV and for live sports, there's other ways to still capture those audiences um, and you know potentially find them um, across social, digital, et cetera, and still engage um, with, uh, with your consumers that way. Um, and, and instead of taking a pause and just, um, and kind of giving up. And, and with that being said, uh, I think it's also seen um, one thing that, that I was thinking about the other day is, is in the B2B industry, um, you know, a lot of sales is driven through in-person events, conferences, uh, kind of face-to-face interactions. And with that being paused as well, um, it, the question is, you know, do as an advertiser, do I do I do I pause and do I wait for a time when when I can engage in those events again and simply um, forget about that portion of the sales pipeline, or uh, you know, given depending on the financial uh, circumstances of of the advertiser, um, do I you know find another way to find that audience and potentially engage with them in a digital manner? So I think that that really affects both retail B2B and any other industry that's super focused on, on face-to-face interaction. And like one strategy that came to mind was uh, if you're planning on attending five different conferences and you know, the companies and the people roughly that were going to be at those conferences. Well, you know, with technology, the way it is today and through partners like LiveRamp, uh, you can still activate those audiences um, and reach them with a digital message. So I think it's all about really shifting, shifting a mindset. That, uh, resonates with me v- very much. In fact, we find that a high percentage of our requests to our audience solutions team, our resident experts on data providers and segments, are for B2B. And I think that's been even increasing in this time um, as folks are trying to find those alternative ways that you mentioned to reach decision makers um, because they don't want buying cycles to close. You know, right now people are working in different places and maybe not able to go to some of those conferences and events that you mentioned, but they're still working. Um, and so um, I think that there are lots of ways to be able to get to those decision makers, those check cutters, and uh, still present, you know, the value proposition of of your particular business. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's definitely a huge shift that everyone's, um, you know, everyone's trying to get accustomed to. And I think as, as people, um, we're very, very persevering. And I think that, you know, as everyone, as everyone continues to, um, get used to their, to their circumstances that everyone, uh, the human race in general to be, to be, uh, to have a bit of a hyperbole is, um, is going to persevere. And that I think, um, that I think business and the economy and, uh, will all follow suit as well. And that's that's the that's the second or third time you brought up the the audience solutions desk. So I just wanted to I don't know if Sam will listen to this, but I wanted to shout out to Sam who we we work with at uh, or at least I myself work with um, on a daily basis. Shout out to him for for being an awesome an awesome counterpart at LiveRamp. Oh, he'll be thrilled to know that uh, you gave him a shout out. Yes, Nick, <laughs> Sam, and Annie on our audience solutions team uh, can be reached um, on our data store at liveramp.com uh, alias and are both very smart people to work with 
and uh, some of the most fun people you'll interact with in the course of a day. So again, at a time like this, where there's some uncertainty, and I think we're all taking a little bit of a hit, uh, it's great to be working with people who really lighten your day. And those three certainly do it. Certainly. And and it's been great chatting with you as well, John, and wanted to, to call out that uh, I had a really great conversation today. And I hope that everyone uh, enjoys uh, listening to our conversation. Um, so I wanted to thank you again for, for taking the time to, to chat with me today. It's, it's much appreciated. Oh, Christian, my pleasure. This was uh, such a fun chat. Learned a lot from you guys and so appreciate your partnership. Stack Adapt and LiveRamp have been doing some really fun things and I know we're only getting started. Yeah, absolutely. And we've got some really exciting things to to announce uh, in the near future. So uh, thanks again, John. Ooh. And thanks to everyone. Thanks to everyone for, for listening as well. Stay safe, healthy, and sane. Yep. Stay, stay safe and healthy, everyone. Thank you very much for tuning into this episode today. If you like what you heard, it would mean a world to us if you do these three things. Subscribe to the show and leave us a review. If you're listening to this and know someone who would find this episode valuable, please share it with them. And finally, please share it on LinkedIn. If you have questions or feedback or would love to learn how agencies or brands work with StackItApp, find us at www.stackitapp.com. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.